25. A chance. He should have killed me that night. It would have been easier. That's selfish of you. What? He gave you his body. He gave you pleasure no mortal lover can match. He fought his own nature to keep you alive, and you wish he hadn't bothered. I didn't mean, yes, you did. Oh, child. You think you love him? You think you're worthy of his love? I can't speak for him, but I know what I feel. Don't be a, and I know what I hear. Jealousy does not become you. What? This is why you're so angry with me, isn't it? You're just like Etempus. You can't bear to share. Be silent. But it isn't necessary, don't you see? He has never stopped loving you. He never will. You and Etempus will always hold his heart in your hands. Yes, that is true. But I am dead, and Etempus is mad. And I am dying. Poor Nahadoth. Poor Nahadoth. And poor us. I woke slowly, aware first of warmth and comfort. Sunlight shone against the side of my face, red through one of my eyelids. A hand rubbed my back in little arcs. I opened my eyes and did not understand what I saw at first a white, rolling surface. I had fleeting memories of something else like it frozen explosions. And then the memories swam away. Deeper into my consciousness and out of reach. For a moment, understanding lingered. I was mortal, not ready for some knowledge. Then even that vanished, and I was myself again. I was wearing a plush robe. I was sitting in someone's lap. Frowning, I lifted my head. Nahadoth's daytime form gazed back at me with frank, two human eyes. I did not think, half falling and half leaping off his lap. And rolling to my feet. He rose with me, and a taut moment passed, me staring, him just standing there. The moment broke when he turned to the small nightstand, on which sat a gleaming silver tea service. He poured, the small liquid sound making me flinch for reasons I did not understand, and then held the cup forward, offering it to me. I stood naked before him, an offering. Gone, like fish in a pond. How do you feel? he asked. I flinched again, not sure I understood the words. How did I feel? Warm, safe, clean. I lifted a hand, sniffed my wrist. I smelled of soap. I bathed you. I hope you'll forgive the liberty. Low, soft, his voice as if he spoke to a skittish mare. He looked different from the day before, healthier for one, but also browner, like a Dare man. You were so deeply asleep that you didn't wake. I found the robe in the closet. I hadn't known I had a robe. Belatedly, it came to me that he was still holding out the cup of tea. I took it, more out of politeness than any real interest. When I sipped, I was surprised to find it lukewarm and rich. With cooling mint and calmative herbs. It made me realize I was thirsty. I drank it down greedily. Naha held out the pot, silently offering more, and I let him pour. What a wonder you are, he murmured as I drank. Noise. He was staring and it bothered me. 
I looked away to shut him out and savored the tea. You were ice cold when I woke up and filthy. There was something soot, I think, all over you. The bath seemed to warm you up, and that helped too. He jerked his head toward the chair where we'd been sitting. There wasn't anywhere else, so... The bed, I said, and flinched again. My voice was hoarse, my throat raw and sore. The mint helped. For an instant, Naha paused, his lips quirking with a hint of his usual cruelty. The bed wouldn't have worked. Puzzled, I looked past him and caught my breath. The bed was a wreck, sagging on a split frame and broken legs. The mattress looked as though it had been hacked by a sword and then set afire. Loose goose down and charred fabric scraps littered the room. It was more than the bed. One of the room's huge glass windows had spiderwebbed. Only luck that it hadn't shattered. The vanity mirror had. One of my bookcases lay on the floor, its contents scattered but intact. I saw my father's book there with great relief. The other bookcase had been shattered into kindling, along with most of the books on it. Naha took the empty teacup from my hand before I could drop it. You'll need to get one of your Enafada friends to fix this. I kept the servants out this morning, but that won't work for long. I... I don't... I shook my head. So much of what had happened was dreamlike in my memory, more metaphysical than actual. I remembered falling. There was no hole in the ceiling, yet the bed. Naha said nothing as I moved about the room, my slippered feet crunching on glass and splinters. When I picked up a shard of the mirror, staring at my own face, he said, You don't look as much like the library mural as I'd first thought. That turned me around to face him. He smiled at me. I had thought him human, but no. He had lived too long and too strangely, knew too much. Perhaps he was more like the demons of old, half-mortal, and half-something else. How long have you known? I asked. Since we met? His lips quirked, though that can't properly be called a meeting, granted. He had stopped and stared at me that first evening in Sky. I'd forgotten in the rush of terror afterward, then later in Samina's quarters. You're a good actor. I have to be. His smile was gone now. Even then, I wasn't sure. Not until I woke up and saw this. He gestured around the devastated room and you there beside me, alive. I didn't expect to be, but I was, and now I would have to deal with the consequences. I'm not her, I said. No. But I'll wager you're a part of her, or she's a part of you. I know a little about these things. He ran a hand through his unruly black locks, just hair, and not the smoke-like curls of his godly self but his meaning was plain. Why haven't you told anyone? You think I would do that? Yes. He laughed, though there was a hard edge to the sound. And you know me so well. You would do anything to make your life easier. Ah, then you do know me. He flopped down in the chair, the only intact piece of furniture in the room, one leg tossed over one arm, but if you know that much, lady, then you should be able to guess why I would never tell the Aramary of your 
uniqueness. I put down the shard of mirror and went to him. Explain, I commanded, because I might pity him, but I would never like him. He shook his head, as if chiding me for my impatience. I, too, want to be free. I frowned, but if the Night Lord is ever freed, what did happen to a mortal soul buried within a god's body? Would he sleep and never awaken? Would some part of him continue, trapped and aware inside an alien mind? Or would he simply cease to exist? He nodded, and I realized all of those thoughts and more must have occurred to him over the centuries. He has promised to destroy me, should the day ever come. And this Naha would rejoice on that day, I realized with a chill. Perhaps he had tried to kill himself before, only to be resurrected the next morning, trapped by magic, meant to torment a god. Well, if all went as planned, he would be free soon. I rose and went to the remaining undamaged window. The sun was high in the sky past noon. My last day of life was half over. I was trying to think of how to spend my remaining time when I felt a new presence in the room and turned. Sia stood there, looking from the bed to me, to Naha, and back again. You seem... well, I said, pleased. He was properly young again, and there was a grass stain on one of his knees. The look in his eyes, though, was far from childish as he focused on Naha. When his pupils turned to ferocious slits, I saw the change this time. I knew I'd have to intervene. I went to Sia, deliberately stepping into his line of sight, and opened my arms to invite him near. He put his arms around me, which at first seemed affectionate, until he picked me up bodily and put me behind him, then turned to face Naha. Are you all right, Yena? he asked, sinking into a crouch. It was not a fighter's crouch. It was closer to the movement of an animal gathering itself to spring. Naha returned his gaze coolly. I put my hand on his wire-tight shoulder. I'm fine. This one is dangerous, Yena. We do not trust him. Lovely Sia, said Naha, and there was that cruel edge in his voice again. He opened his arms in a mockery of my own gesture. I've missed you. Come, give your father a kiss. Sia hissed, and I had a moment to wonder whether I had a chance in the infinite hells of holding him. Then Naha laughed and sat back in the chair. Of course, he would know exactly how far to push. Sia looked as though he was still considering something dire when it finally occurred to me to distract him. Sia! He did not look at me. Sia, I was with your father last night. He swung around to look at me, so startled that his eyes reverted to human at once. Beyond him, Naha chuckled softly. You couldn't have been, said Sia. It's been centuries since... He paused and leaned close. I saw his nostrils twitch delicately once, twice. Skies and earth, you were with him. Self-conscious, I surreptitiously sniffed the collar of my robe. Hopefully it was something only gods could detect. Yes. But he... that should have... Sia shook his head sharply. Yena, oh, Yena, do you know what this means? It means your little experiment worked better than you thought, 
said Naha. In the shadows of the chair, his eyes glittered, reminding me just a little of his other self. Perhaps you could give her a try too, Sia. You must get tired of perverted old men. Sia tensed all over, his hands forming fists. I marveled that he allowed such taunts to work on him, but perhaps that was another of his weaknesses. He had bound himself by the laws of childhood. Perhaps one of those laws was no child shall hold his temper when bullied. I touched his chin and turned his face back around to me. The room. Could you? Oh, yes. Pointedly, turning his back on Naha, he looked around the room and said something in his own language, fast and high-pitched. The room was abruptly restored, just like that. Handy, I said. No one's better at cleaning up messes than me. He flashed me a quick grin. Naha got up and went to browse one of the restored bookshelves, studiously ignoring us. Belatedly, it occurred to me that he had been different before Sia appeared. Solicitous, respectful, almost kind. I opened my mouth to thank him for that, then thought better of it. Sia had been careful to conceal that side of himself from me, but I had seen the signs of a crueler streak within him. There was very old, very bad blood between these two, and such things were rarely one-sided. Let's go somewhere else to talk. I have a message for you. Breaking my reverie, Sia pulled me to the nearest wall. We stepped through it into the dead space beyond. After a few chambers, Sia sighed, opened his mouth, closed it, then finally decided to speak. The message I carry is from Rilad. He wants to see you. Why? I don't know, but I don't think you should go. I frowned. Why not? Think, Yena. You aren't the only one facing death tomorrow. When you appoint Samina heir, the first thing she'll do is kill her baby brother and he knows it. What if he decides that killing you right now before the ceremony is the best way to earn himself a few extra days of life? It would be futile, of course. Descartes has seen what's happened with Dar. He'll just designate someone else to sacrifice and tell that person to choose Samina. But desperate men do not always think rationally. Sia's reasoning made sense, but something else did not. Rilad ordered you to bring me this message? No, he asked. And he asks to see you. He said, if you see her, remind her that I am not my sister. I have never done her harm. I know she listens to you. Sia scowled. Remind her. That was the only part he commanded. He knows how to speak to us. He left me the choice deliberately. I stopped walking. Sia got a few paces ahead before he noticed and turned to me with a puzzled look. And why did you choose to tell me? I asked. A shadow of unease passed over his face. He lowered his eyes. It's true that I shouldn't have he said slowly. Kudue wouldn't have allowed it if she'd known. But what Kudue doesn't know... A faint smile crossed Sia's face. Well, it can hurt her, but we'll just have to hope that doesn't happen. I folded my arms, waiting. He still hadn't answered my question, and he knew it. Sia looked annoyed. You're no fun anymore. Sia? Fine, fine. 
He slid his hands into his pockets and shrugged with total nonchalance, but his voice was serious. You agreed to help us, that's all. That makes you our ally, not our tool. Kurue is wrong. We shouldn't hide things from you. I nodded. Thank you. Thank me by not mentioning it to Kurue, or Nahadov, or Jakarn, while you're at it. He paused, then smiled at me with sudden amusement. Though it seems Nahadov has his own secrets to hide with you. My cheeks grew hot. It was my decision. I blurted the words, irrationally compelled to explain. I caught him by surprise and, Yana, please. You're not about to try to tell me you took advantage of him or anything like that, are you? As I had been about to say exactly that, I fell silent. Sia shook his head and sighed. I was startled to see an odd sort of sadness in his smile. I'm glad, Yana. More glad than you know. He's been so alone since the war. He isn't alone. He has you. We comfort him, yes, and keep him from completely letting go of his sanity. We can even be his lovers, though for us the experience is, well, as strenuous as it was for you. I blushed again, though some of that was at the disquieting thought of Nahadoth lying with his own children. But the three had been siblings after all. The gods did not live by our rules. As if hearing that thought, Sia nodded. It's equals he needs, not pity offerings from his children. I'm not equal to any of the three, Sia, no matter whose soul is in me. He grew solemn. Love can level the ground between mortals and gods, Yena. It's something we've learned to respect. I shook my head. This was something I had understood from the moment the mad impulse to make love to a god had come over me. He doesn't love me. Sia rolled his eyes. I love you, Yena, but sometimes you can be such a mortal. Taken aback, I fell silent. Sia shook his head and called one of his floating orbs out of nowhere, batting it back and forth in his hands. This one was blue-green, which teased my memories mercilessly. So? What do you plan to do about Relad? What? Oh, so dizzying, this constant switch between matters mundane and divine. I'll meet with him. Yena, he won't kill me. In my mind's eye, I saw Rilad's face from two nights ago, framed by the doorway of my room. He had come to tell me of Sia's torture, which even Tavril had not done. Surely, he'd realize that if Semina forced me to give up my secrets, she would win the contest. So why had he done it? I had a private theory, based on that brief meeting in the solarium. I believed that somewhere deep down, Rilad was even less of an Aramary than Tavril, perhaps even less than me. Somewhere amid all that bitterness and self-loathing, hidden behind a thousand protective layers, Rilad Aramary had a soft heart. Useless for an Aramary heir if it was true. Beyond useless, dangerous. But because of it, I was willing to chance trusting him. I could still choose him, I said to Sia, and he knows that. It would make no sense, because it would guarantee my people's suffering, but I could do it. I'm his last hope. You sound very sure of that, Sia said dubiously. 
I had the sudden urge to towel Zosia's hair. He might even enjoy it, given his nature. But he would not enjoy the thought that triggered the impulse. Sia really was a child in one fundamental way. He did not understand mortals. He had lived among us for centuries, millennia, and yet he had never been one of us. He did not know the power of hope. I am very sure, I said, but I would be grateful if you'd come with me. He looked surprised, though immediately he took my hand. Of course, but why? Moral support. And in case I'm horribly, horribly wrong. He grinned and opened another wall that would take us there. Rilad's apartment was as large as Semina's, and each was three times the size of mine. If I had seen their apartments my first day in Sky, I would have immediately understood that I was not a true contender for Descartes' rule. The configuration of his quarters was entirely different from Semina's, however. A huge, open chamber with a short stair near the back leading up to a loft area. The main floor was dominated by a square depression set into the floor in which a world map had been formed of beautifully colored ceramic tiles. Aside from this, the chamber was surprisingly austere, with only a few pieces of furniture, a sidebar heavily laden with alcohol bottles, and a small bookshelf. And Rilad, who stood by the map looking stiff and formal and uncomfortably sober. Greetings, cousin, he said as I came in, and then he paused, glaring at Sia, I only invited Yena. I put a hand on Sia's shoulder. He was concerned that you meant me harm, cousin. Do you? What? Of course not. The look of surprise on Rilad's face reassured me. In fact, everything about this little scene suggested he was set to charm me, and one did not charm expendable people. Why in the maelstrom would I? You're no good to me dead. I set my smile and decided to let this tactless remark slide. That's good to know, cousin. Don't mind me, Sia said. I'm just a fly on the wall. Rilad made an effort and ignored him. Can I get you something? Tea? A drink? Well, since you asked, Sia began, before I squeezed his shoulder hard. I didn't want to push Rilad. At least not yet. Thank you. No, I said, though I appreciate the offer. I also appreciate your warning, cousin, the night before last. I stroked Sia's hair. Rilad wrestled for an appropriate response for a full three seconds before muttering. It was nothing. Why did you invite me here? I have an offer to make. He gestured vaguely at the floor. I looked down at the world map in the floor, my eyes automatically finding high north and the tiny corner of it that was dark. Four polished, Flattened white stones sat ranged around Dar's borders, one in each of the three kingdoms that I'd suspected were part of the alliance, plus a second stone in Menche. At Dar's heart sat a single marbled gray stone, probably representing our pathetic troop strength. But just south of Menche, along the coast where the continent met the repentant sea, were three pale yellow stones. I could not guess what those were. I looked up at Rilad. Dar is all I care about right now. Samina has offered me my people's lives. Is that what you're offering? Potentially more than that. Rilad stepped down into the map depression, walking over to stand just below High North.
His feet were in the middle of the repentant sea, which struck me as irrationally amusing for a moment. The white are your enemies, as I'm certain you've guessed. Samina's pawns, these. He pointed at the yellow stones, are mine. I frowned, but before I could speak, Sia snorted. You have no allies in High North, Rilad. You've ignored the whole continent for years. Samina's victory is the result of your own neglect. I know that, Rilad snapped. But then he turned to face me. It's true. I have no friends in High North. Even if I did, the kingdoms there all hate your land, cousin. Samina's simply facilitating what they've been itching to do for generations. I shrugged. High North was a land of barbarians once, and we Dare were among the most barbaric. The priests may have civilized us since, but no one can erase the past. Rilad nodded dismissively. He didn't care, and it showed. He really was terrible at being charming. He pointed at the Yellowstones again. Mercenaries, he said. Mostly kin and men pirates, some gore night fighters, and a contingent of Zoram City strikemen. I can order them to fight for you, cousin. I stared at the yellow stones and was reminded of my earlier thought about mortals and the power of hope. Sia hopped down into the map depression and peered at the yellow stones as if he could see the actual forces they represented. He whistled. You must have bankrupted yourself to hire so many and get them to high north in time or lot. I didn't realize you'd acquired that much capital over the years. He glanced back at Rilad and me over his shoulder. But these are too far away to get to Dar by tomorrow. Samina's friends are already on their way. Rilad nodded, watching me. My forces are close enough to attack Menche's capital tonight and even stage a strike on Toklin the day after. They're fully equipped, rested, and well supplied. Their battle plans were drawn up by Jacarn herself. He folded his arms a bit defensively. With Manche under attack, half your enemies will turn back from the assault on Dar. That will leave the Zarain and the Atir rebels for your people to contend with, and they'll still be outnumbered two to one. But it will give the Dare a fighting chance. I threw Rilad a sharp look. He had gauged me well on this, surprisingly well. Somehow, he had realized that it was not the prospect of war that frightened me. I was a warrior, after all. But an unwinnable war against enemies who would not only take spoils, but destroy our spirits, if not our lives. That I could not stomach. Two to one odds were winnable. Hard, but winnable. I glanced at Sia, who nodded. My instincts told me Rilad's offer was legitimate, but he knew Rilad's capabilities and would warn me of any trickery. I think we were both surprised that Rilad had managed this at all. You should abstain from drinking more often, cousin, I said softly. Rilad smiled, utterly without humor. It wasn't intentional, I assure you. It's just that impending death tends to sour even the best wine. I understood completely. There was another of those awkward silences, and then Rilad stepped forward, proffering his hand. Surprised, I took it. We were agreed. Later, Sia and I walked slowly back to my room. He took me on a new route this time, passing through parts of sky that I had not seen in the two weeks since my arrival. Among other wonders, he showed me a high, narrow chamber 
not a dead space, but still sealed off and forgotten for some reason, whose ceiling looked like an accident in the god's construction design. The pale sky stuff hung in attenuated extrusions like cave stalactites, though far more delicate and graceful. A few were close enough to touch. Some ended barely inches below the ceiling. I could not fathom the purpose of the chamber until Sia led me to a panel on the wall. When I touched it, a slot opened on the ceiling, letting in a sharp, startling gust of ice-cold air. I shivered, but forgot my discomfort when the ceiling extrusions began to sing, stroked into vibration by the wind. It was like no music I'd ever heard. Wavering and alien, a cacophony too beautiful to call merely noise. I didn't let Sia touch the panel to shut off the air until I began to lose the feeling in my fingers. In the silence that fell, during which I crouched against the wall and blew on my hands to warm them, Sia crouched in front of me, staring at me intently. I was too cold to notice at first, but then he leaned forward and kissed me. Startled, I froze, but there was nothing unpleasant about it. It was the kiss of a child, spontaneous and unconditional. Only the fact that he was not a child made me uncomfortable. Sia pulled back and sighed ruefully at the expression on my face. Sorry, he said and settled down beside me. Don't apologize, I said. Just tell me what that was for. I realized that was an inadvertent command and added, Will you? He shook his head, playing shy, and pressed his face into my arm. I liked having his warmth there, but I didn't like his silence. I pulled away forcing him to sit up or risk falling over. Yaina! Sia! He sighed, looking annoyed, and shifted to sit cross-legged. For a moment, I thought he'd just sit there and sulk, but finally he said, I just don't think it's fair, that's all. Nah, I got to taste you, but I didn't. That did make me uncomfortable. Even in my barbarian land, women do not take children as lovers. The annoyance grew in his expression. I told you before, I don't want that from you. I'm talking about this. He sat up on his knees abruptly and leaned toward me. I flinched away and he stopped, waiting. It occurred to me that I loved him, trusted him with my very soul. Shouldn't I trust him with a kiss? So after a deep breath, I relaxed. Sia waited until I gave him a minute nod and a moment longer than that, making sure. Then he leaned in and kissed me again. And this time it was different, because I could taste him. Not Sia, the sweaty, slightly dirty child, but the Sia beneath the human mask. It is difficult to describe. A sudden burst of something refreshing, like ripe melon or maybe a waterfall. A torrent, a current, it rushed into me and through me and back into him so swiftly that I barely had time to draw breath. Salt. Lightning. That hurt enough that I almost pulled away, but distantly I felt Sia's hands tighten painfully on my arms. Before I could yelp, cold wind shot through me, soothing both the jolt and my bruises. Then Sia pulled back. I stared at him, but his eyes were still shut uttering a deep, satisfied sigh. He shifted to sit beside me again, lifting my arm and pulling it round himself 
proprietarily. What was that? I asked, when I had recovered somewhat. Me, he said, of course. What do I taste like? Sia sighed, snuggling against my shoulder, his arms looping around my waist. Soft, misty places full of sharp edges and hidden colors. I could not help it. I giggled. I felt lightheaded, like I'd drunk too much of Rilad's liqueur. That's not a taste. Of course it is. You tasted Naha, didn't you? He tastes like falling to the bottom of the universe. That stopped my giggling, because it was true. We sat a while longer, not speaking, not thinking, or at least I was not. It was, after the constant worry and scheming of the past two weeks, a moment of pure bliss. Perhaps that was why, when I did think again, it was of a different kind of peace. What will happen to me? I asked, after. He was a clever child. He knew what I meant at once. You'll drift for a time, he said very softly. Souls do that when they're first freed from flesh. Eventually, they gravitate toward places that resonate with certain aspects of their nature, places that are safe for souls lacking flesh, unlike this realm. The heavens and the hells. He shrugged just a little, so that it would not jostle either of us. That's what mortals call them. Is that not what they are? I don't know. What does it matter? I frowned, and he sighed. I'm not mortal, Yena. I don't obsess over this the way your kind does. They're just places for life to rest when it's not being alive. There are many of them because Enifa knew your kind needed variety, he sighed. That was why Enifa's soul kept drifting, we think. All the places she made, the ones that resonated best with her, vanished when she died. I shivered and thought I felt something else shiver deep within me. Will... Will both our souls find a place, she and I? Or will hers drift again? I don't know. The pain in his voice was quiet, inflectionless. Another person would have missed it. I rubbed his back gently. If I can, I said, if I have any control over it, I'll take her with me. She may not want to go. The only places left now are the ones her brothers created. Those don't fit her much then she can stay inside me if that's better. I'm no heaven, but we've put up with each other this long. We're going to have to talk, though. All these visions and dreams must go. They're really quite distracting. Sia lifted his head and stared at me. I kept a straight face for as long as I could, which was not long. Of course, he managed it longer than me. He had centuries more of practice. We dissolved into laughter there on the floor, wrapped around each other, and thus ended the last day of my life. I went back to my apartment alone, about an hour before dusk. When I got inside, Naha was still sitting in the big chair as if he hadn't moved all day, although there was an empty food tray on the nightstand. He started as I walked in. I suspected he had been napping, or at least daydreaming. Go where you'd like for the remainder of the day, I told him. I'd like to be alone a while. He did not argue as he got to his feet. There was a dress on my bed, a long, formal gown, beautifully made, except that it was a drab gray in color. There were matching shoes and accessories sitting beside it. Servants brought those, 
Naha said. You're to wear them tonight. Thank you. He moved past me on his way out, not looking at me. At the room's threshold, I heard him stop for a moment. Perhaps he turned back. Perhaps he opened his mouth to speak. But he said nothing. And a moment later, I heard the apartment's door open and close. I bathed and got dressed, then sat down in front of the windows to wait. 26. The Ball I see my land below me. On the mountain pass, the watchtowers have already been overrun. The Daran troops there are dead. They fought hard, using the pass's narrowness to make up for their small numbers. But in the end, there were simply too many of the enemy. The Dare lasted long enough to light the signal fires and send a message. The enemy is coming. The forests are Dara's second line of defense. Many an enemy has faltered here. Poisoned by snakes or weakened by disease or worn down by the endless strangling vines. My people have always taken advantage of this, seeding the forest with wise women who know how to hide and strike and fade back into the brush like leopards. But times have changed, and this time the enemy has brought a special weapon, a scrivener. Once this would have been unheard of in High North. Magic is an ominous thing, deemed cowardly by most barbarian standards. Even for those nations willing to try cowardice, the Amun keep their scriveners too expensive to hire. But of course, that is not a problem for an Aramary. Stupid, stupid me. I have money. I could have sent a scrivener to fight on Dar's behalf. But in the end, I am still a barbarian. I did not think of it. And now it is too late. The scrivener, some contemporary of Arrain's, draws sigils on paper and pastes these to a few trees and steps back. A column of white hot fire sears through the forest in an unnaturally straight line. It goes for miles and miles, all the way to the stone walls of Arabaya, which it smashes against. Clever. If they had set the whole forest afire, it would have burned for months. This is just a narrow path. When it has burned enough, the scrivener sets down more god words, and the fire goes out. Aside from crumbling charred trees and the unrecognizable corpses of animals, the way is clear. The enemy can reach Arabaya within a day. There is a stir at the edge of the forest. Someone stumbles out, blinded and half-choked by smoke. A wise woman? No, this is a man, a boy, not even old enough to sire daughters. What is he doing out here? We have never allowed boys to fight. And the knowledge comes. My people are desperate. Even children must fight if we are to survive. The enemy soldiers swarm over him like ants. They do not kill him. They chain him in a supply cart and carry him along as they march. When they reach Arabaya, they mean to put him on display to strike at our hearts. Oh, and how it will. Our men have always been our treasures. They may slit his throat on the steps of Sar and Anem, just to rub salt in the wound. I should have sent a Scrivener. The Ballroom of Sky A vast, high-ceilinged chamber whose walls were even more vividly mother-of-pearl than the rest of the palace, and tinted a faint rose hue. 
After the unrelenting white of the rest of sky, that touch of color seemed almost shockingly vivid. Chandeliers like the starry sky turned overhead. Music drifted through the air, complicated Amon stuff, from the sextet of musicians on a nearby dais. The floors, to my surprise, were something other than sky stuff, clear and golden, like dark polished amber. It could not possibly have been amber, since there were no seams, and that would have required a chunk of amber the size of a small hill, but that was what it looked like. And people, filling this glorious space, I was stunned to see the enormous number present, all of them granted special dispensation to stay in sky for this one night. There must have been a thousand people in the room, preening high bloods and the most officious of the salon's officials, kings and queens of lands far more important than mine, famous artists and courtesans, everybody who was anybody. I had spent the past few days wholly absorbed in my own troubles, so I had not noticed carriages coming and going all day, as they must have been to bring so many to sky, my own fault. I would have happily gone into the room and merged with the crowd as best I could. They all wore white, which was traditional for formal events in sky. Only I wore a color. But I wouldn't have been able to disappear in any case, because when I entered the room and stopped at the top of the stairs, a servant nearby, clad in a strange white formal livery that I'd never seen before, cleared his throat and bellowed, loudly enough to make me wince. The Lady Yena Aramary, chosen heir of Decarta, benevolent guardian of the hundred thousand kingdoms, our guest of honor. This obliged me to stop at the top of the steps, as every eye in the room turned to me. I had never stood before such a horde in my life. Panic filled me for a moment, along with the utter conviction that they knew. How could they not? There was polite, restrained applause. I saw smiles on many faces, but no true friendliness. Interest? Yes. The kind of interest one holds for a prize heifer that is soon to be slaughtered for the plates of the privileged. What will she taste like? I imagined in their gleaming, avid regard. If only we could have a bite. My mouth went dry, my knees locked, which was the only thing that stopped me from turning on my uncomfortably high heels and running out of the room. That, and one other realization, that my parents had met at an Aramary ball, perhaps in this very room. My mother had stood on the same steps and faced her own room full of people who hated and feared her behind their smiles. She would have smiled back at them. So I fixed my eyes on a point just above the crowd. I smiled and lifted my hand in a polite and regal wave and hated them back. It made the fear recede so that I could then descend the steps without tripping or worrying whether I looked graceful. Halfway down, I looked across the room and saw Decarta on a dais opposite the door. Somehow, they had hauled his huge stone chair, not thrown, from the audience chamber. He watched me, from within its hard embrace, with his colorless eyes. I inclined my head. He blinked. Tomorrow, I thought. Tomorrow. The crowd opened and closed around me like lips. 
I made my way through sycophants who attempted to curry favor by making small talk, and more honest folk who merely gave me cool or sardonic nods. Eventually, I reached an area where the crowd thinned, which happened to be near a refreshment table. I got a glass of wine from the attendant, drained it, got another, and then spotted arched glass doors to one side, praying they would open and were not merely decorative. I went to them and found that they led outside to a wide patio where a few guests had already congregated to take in the magically warmed night air. Some whispered to one another as I went past, but most were too engrossed in secrets or seduction or any of the usual activities that take place in the shadowy corners of such events. I stopped at the railing only because it was there, and spent a while willing my hand to stop shaking so I could drink my wine. A hand came around me from behind, covering my own and helping me steady the glass. I knew who it was even before I felt that familiar, cool stillness against my back. They mean for this night to break you," said the night lord. His breath stirred my hair, tickled my ear. And set my skin tingling with a half a dozen delicious memories. I closed my eyes, grateful for the simplicity of desire. They're succeeding, I said. No, Kenneth made you stronger than that. He took the glass from my hand and lifted it out of my sight, as if he meant to drink it himself. Then he returned the glass to me. What had been white wine, some incredibly light vintage that had hardly any color. And tasted of flowers, was now a red so dark that it seemed black in the balcony light. Even when I raised the glass to the sky, the stars were only a faint glimmer through a lens of deepest burgundy. I sipped experimentally and shivered as the taste moved over my tongue, sweet, but with a hint of almost metallic bitterness and a salty aftertaste like tears. And we have made you stronger. Said Nahadoth. He spoke into my hair. One of his arms slid around me from behind, pulling me against him. I could not help relaxing against him. I turned in the half circle of his arm and stopped in surprise. The man who gazed down at me did not look like Nahadoth, not in any guise I'd ever seen. He looked human, Amen, and his hair was a rather dull blonde, nearly as short as mine. His face was handsome enough, but it was neither the face he wore to please me nor the face that Semina had shaped. It was just a face, and he wore white. That, more than anything else, shocked me silent. Nahadoth, because it was him. I felt that, no matter what he looked like, looked amused. The Lord of Night is not welcome at any celebration of Etempus's servants. I just didn't think. I touched his sleeve. It was just cloth, something finely made, part of a jacket that looked vaguely military. I stroked it and was disappointed when it did not curl around my fingers in welcome. I made the substance of the universe. Did you think white thread would be a challenge? That startled me into a laugh, which startled me silent in the next instant. I had never heard him joke before. What did it mean? He lifted a hand to my cheek, sobering. It struck me that he was pretending to be human. He was nothing like his daytime self. Nothing about him was human beyond his appearance, 
not his movements, not the speed with which he shifted from one expression to another, especially not his eyes. A human mask simply wasn't enough to conceal his true nature. It was so obvious to my eyes that I marveled that other people out on the balcony weren't screaming and running, terrified to find the night lord so close. My children think I'm going mad, he said, stroking my face ever so gently. Kurue tells me I risk all our hopes over you. She's right. I frowned in confusion. My life is still yours. I'll abide by our agreement, even though I've lost the contest. You acted in good faith. He sighed, to my surprise leaning forward to rest his forehead against mine. Even now, you speak of your life as a commodity sold for our good faith. What we have done to you is obscene. I had no idea what to say to that. I was too stunned. It occurred to me, in a flash of insight, that this was what Kurue feared. Nahadoth's fickle, impassioned sense of honor. He had gone to war to vent his grief over Enifa. He had kept himself and his children enslaved out of sheer stubbornness rather than forgive Etempus. He could have dealt with his brother differently, in ways that wouldn't have risked the whole universe and destroyed so many lives. But that was the problem. When the Night Lord cared for something, his decisions became irrational, his actions extreme. And he was beginning, against all reason, to care for me. Flattering. Frightening. I could not guess what he might do in such a circumstance. But more important, I realized what this meant in the short term. In only a few hours, I would die, and he would be left to mourn yet again. How strange that this thought made my own heart ache, too. I cupped the Night Lord's face between my hands and sighed, closing my eyes so that I could feel the person beneath the mask. I'm sorry, I said, and I was. I had never meant to cause him pain. He did not move, and neither did I. It felt good, leaning against his solidity, resting in his arms. It was an illusion, but for the first time in a long while, I felt safe. I don't know how long we stood there, but we both heard it when the music changed. I straightened and looked around. The handful of guests who had been out on the patio with us had gone inside. That meant it was midnight. Time for the main dance of the evening. The highlight of the ball. Do you want to go in? Nahadoth asked. No, of course not. I'm fine out here. They danced to honor Tempest. I looked at him, confused. Why should I care about that? His smile made me feel warm inside. Have you turned from the faith of your ancestors so completely? My ancestors worshipped you. And Inifa, and Etempis, and our children. The Dare were one of the few races who honored us all. I sighed. It's been a long time since those days. Too much has changed. You have changed. I could say nothing to that. It was true. On impulse, I stepped away from him and took his hands, pulling him into dancing position. To the gods, I said, all of them. It was so gratifying to surprise him. I have never danced to honor myself. Well, there you are. 
I shrugged and waited for the start of a new course before pulling him to step with me. A first time for everything. Nahadoth looked amused, but he moved easily in time with me despite the complicated steps. Every noble child learned such dances, but I had never really liked them. Almond dances reminded me of the almond themselves, cold, rigid, more concerned with appearance than enjoyment. Yet here, on a dark balcony under a moonless sky, partnered by a god, I found myself smiling as we wheeled back and forth. It was easy to remember the steps with him exerting gentle guiding pressure against my hands and back. Easy to appreciate the grace of the timing with a partner who glided like the wind. I closed my eyes, leaning into the turns, sighing in pleasure as the music swelled to match my mood. When the music stopped, I leaned against him and wished the night would never end. Not just because of what awaited me come dawn. Will you be with me tomorrow? I asked, meaning the true Nahadoth, not his daytime self. I am permitted to remain myself by daylight for the duration of the ceremony. So that Tempest can ask you to return to him? His breath tickled my hair, a soft, cold laugh. And this time, I shall, but not the way he expects. I nodded, listening to the slow, strange pulse of his heart. It sounded distant, echoing, as if I heard it across miles. What will you do if you win? Kill him? His moment of silence warned me before the actual answer came. I don't know. You still love him. He did not answer, though he stroked my back once. I didn't fool myself. It was not me he meant to reassure. It's all right, I said. I understand. No, he said. No mortal could understand. I said nothing more, and he said nothing more, and thus did the long night pass. I had endured too many nights with little sleep. I must have fallen asleep standing there, because suddenly I was blinking and lifting my head, and the sky was a different color, a hazy gradient of soupy black through gray. The new moon hovered just above the horizon, a darker blotch against the lightning sky. Nahado's fingers squeezed again gently, and I realized he'd woken me. Varane stood there, and Semina, and Rilad. Their white garments seemed to glow, casting their faces into shadow. Time, said Varane. I searched inside myself and was pleased to find stillness rather than fear. Yes, I said. Let's go. Inside, the ball was still in full swing, though there were fewer people dancing now than I had last seen. Descartes' throne stood empty on the other side of the throng. Perhaps he had left early to prepare. Once we entered Skye's quiet, preternaturally bright halls, Nahadoth let his guise slip. His hair lengthened and his clothing changed color between one step and another. Pale-skinned again, too many of my relatives around, I suppose. We rode a lift upward, emerging on what I now recognized as Sky's topmost floor. As we exited, I saw the doors to the solarium standing open, the manicured forest beyond shadowed and quiet. The only light came from the palace's central spire, which jutted up from the solarium's heart, glowing like the moon. A fainter path 
ran from our feet into the trees, directly toward the spire's base. But I was distracted by the figures who stood on either side of the door. Kurue I recognized at once. I had not forgotten the beauty of her gold-silver-platinum wings. Jacarn, too, was magnificent in silver armor traced with molten sigils, her helm shining in the light. I had last seen that armor in a dream. The third figure, between them, was at once less impressive and more strange. A sleek, black-furred cat like the leopards of my homeland, though significantly larger. And no forest had given birth to this leopard, whose fur rippled like waves in an unseen wind, iridescent to mat, to a familiar, impossibly deep blackness. So he did look like his father, after all. I could not help smiling. Thank you, I mouthed. The cat bared its teeth back in what could never have been misinterpreted as a snarl and winked one green slitted eye. I had no illusions about their presence. Jacarn was not in full battle armor just to impress us with its shine. The Second God's War was about to begin, and they were ready. Sia, well, maybe Sia was here for me, and Nahadoth. I looked back at him over my shoulder. He was not watching me or his children. Instead, his gaze had turned upward, toward the top of the spire. Varane shook his head, apparently deciding not to protest. He glanced at Semina, who shrugged, at Rolad, who glared at him as if to say, why would I possibly care? Our eyes met, mine and Rolad's. He was pale, sweat beating his upper lip, but he nodded to me just slightly. I returned the nod. So be it, Varane said, and all walked into the solarium toward that central spire. 27. The Ritual of the Succession At the top of the spire was a room, if it could be called that. The space was enclosed in glass, like an oversized bell jar. If not for a faint reflective sheen, it would have seemed as though we stood in the open air, atop a spire sheared flat at the tip. The floor of the room was the same white stuff as the rest of Sky, and it was perfectly circular, unlike every other room I'd seen in the palace in the last two weeks. That marked the room as a space sacred to Etempus. We stood high above the great white bulk of the palace. From the odd angle, I could just glimpse the forecourt, recognizing it by the green blot of the garden and the jut of the pier. I had never realized that sky itself was circular. Beyond that, the earth was a darkened mass, seeming to curve round us like a great bowl, circles within circles within circles, a sacred place indeed. Descartes stood opposite the room's floor entrance. He was leaning heavily on his beautiful Darwood cane, which he had doubtless needed to get up the steep spiral staircase that led into the room. Behind and above him, pre-dawn clouds covered the sky, bunched and rippled like strings of pearls. They were as gray and ugly as my gown, except in the east, where the clouds had begun to glow yellow-white. Hurry up, Descartes said, nodding toward points around the room's circumference. Relad there, Semina there, across from him, Varane to me, Yena here. I did as I was bidden. 
moving to stand before a simple white plinth that rose from the floor about as high as my chest. There was a hole in its surface, perhaps a hand span wide, the shaft that led from the oubliette. A few inches above this shaft, a tiny dark object floated, unsupported in the air. It was withered, misshapen, closely resembling a lump of dirt. This was the stone of earth? This? I consoled myself with the fact that at least the poor soul in the oubliette was dead now. Descartes paused then, glaring behind me at the Inafada. Nahadoth, you may take your customary position. The rest of you, I did not command your presence. To my surprise, Varane answered. It would serve well to have them here, my lord. The Sky Father might be pleased to see his children, even these traitors. No father is pleased to see children who have turned on him. Descartes' gaze drifted to me. I wondered if it was me he saw, or just Kenneth's eyes in my face. I want them here, I said. There was no visible reaction from him beyond a tightening of his already thin lips. Such good friends they are, to come and watch you die. It would be harder to face this without their support, Grandfather. Tell me, did you allow Egrith any company when you murdered her? He drew himself straight, which was rare for him. For the first time, I saw a shadow of the man he had been, tall and haughty as any almond, and formidable as my mother. It startled me to see the resemblance at last. He was too thin for the height now, though. It only emphasized his unhealthy gauntness. I will not explain my actions to you, granddaughter. I nodded. From the corner of my eye, I saw the others watching. Rilad looked anxious, Samina annoyed. Varane? I could not read him, but he watched me with an intensity that puzzled me. I could not spare thought for it, however. This was perhaps my last chance to find out why my mother had died. I still believed Varane had done the deed, yet that still made no sense. He'd loved her. But if he had been acting on Descartes' orders... You don't need to explain, I replied. I can guess. When you were young, you were like these two, I gestured to Rilad and Samina. Self-absorbed, hedonistic, cruel. But not as heartless as they, were you? You married Egrith, and you must have cared for her, or your mother wouldn't have designated her as your sacrifice when the time came. But you loved power more. And so you made the trade. You became clan head, and your daughter became your mortal enemy. Descartes' lips twitched. I could not tell if this was a sign of emotion or the palsy that seemed to afflict him now and again. Kenneth loved me. Yes, she did, because that was the kind of woman my mother had been. She could hate and love at once. She could use one to conceal and fuel the other. She had been, as Nahadov said, a true Aramary, only her goals had been different. She loved you, I said, and I think you killed her. This time I was certain that pain crossed the old man's face. It gave me a moment's satisfaction, though no more than that. The war was lost. This skirmish meant nothing in the grand scale of things. 
I would die. And while my death would fulfill the desires of so many, my parents, the Anafada, myself, I could not face it in such clinical terms. My heart was full of fear. In spite of myself, I turned and looked at the Anafada ranged behind me. Kurue would not meet my eyes, but Jacarn did, and she gave me a respectful nod. Sia. He uttered a soft, feline croon that was no less anguished for its inhumanity. I felt tears sting my eyes. Foolishness. Even if I weren't destined to die today, I would be only a hiccup in his endless life. And I was the one who was dying. Yet I would miss him terribly. Finally, I looked at Nahadoth, who had hunkered down on one knee behind me, framed by the gray cloud chains. Of course, they would force him to kneel, here in Tempest's place. But it was me he watched, and not the brightening eastern sky. I had expected his expression to be impassive, but it was not. Shame and sorrow and a rage that had shattered planets were in his eyes, along with other emotions too unnerving to name. Could I trust what I saw? Did I dare? After all, he would soon be powerful again. What did it cost him to pretend love now and thus motivate me to follow through with their plan? I lowered my eyes, pained. I had been in skies so long that I no longer trusted even myself. I did not kill your mother, Takarta said. I started and turned to him. He had spoken so softly that for a moment I thought I'd misheard. What? I didn't kill her. I would never have killed her. If she had not hated me, I would have begged her to return to Sky, even bring you along. To my shock, I saw wetness on Descartes' cheeks. He was crying and glaring at me through his tears. I would even have tried to love you for her sake. Uncle, said Samina. Her tone bordered on the insolent, practically vibrating with impatience. While I can appreciate your kindness toward our cousin, be silent. Descartes snarled at her. His diamond-pale eyes fixed on her so sharply that she actually flinched. You don't know how close I came to killing you when I heard of Kenneth's death. Samina went stiff, echoing Descartes' own posture. Predictably, she did not obey his order. That would have been your privilege, my lord, but I had no part in Kenneth's death. I paid no attention to her or this mongrel daughter of hers. I don't even know why you chose her as today's sacrifice. To see if she was a true Aramary, Descartes said very softly. His eyes drifted back to mine. It took three full heartbeats for me to realize what he meant, and the blood drained from my face as I did. You thought I killed her? I whispered. Father of all, you honestly believed that. Murdering those we love best is a long tradition in our family, Descartes said. Beyond us, the eastern sky had grown very bright. I spluttered. 
It took me several tries to muster a coherent sentence through my fury, and when I did, it was in Dare. I only realized it when Dakarta looked more confused than offended by my curses. I am not Aramary, I finished. Fists clenched at my sides. You eat your own young. You feed on suffering like monsters out of some ancient tale. I will never be one of you in anything but blood, and if I could burn that out of myself, I would. Perhaps you aren't one of us, Descartes said. Now I see that you are innocent, and by killing you, I only destroy what remains of her. There is a part of me which regrets this, but I will not lie, granddaughter. There is another part of me that will rejoice in your death. You took her from me. She left Sky to be with your father and to raise you. Do you wonder why? I gestured around the glass chamber at gods and blood relatives come to watch me die. You killed her mother. What did you think she would do? Get over it? For the first time since I had met him, there was a flicker of humanity in Descartes' sad, self-deprecating smile. I suppose I did. Foolish of me, wasn't it? I could not help it. I echoed his smile. Yes, grandfather, it was. Varane touched Descartes' shoulder then. A patch of gold had grown against the eastern horizon, bright and warning. Dawn was coming. The time for confessions had passed. Descartes nodded, then gazed at me for a long, silent moment before speaking. I'm sorry, he said very softly, an apology that covered many transgressions. We must begin. Even then, I did not say what I believed. I did not point at Varane and name him my mother's killer. There was still time. I could have asked Dakota to see him before completing the succession, as a last tribute to Kenneth's memory. I don't know why I didn't. No, I do. I think in that moment, vengeance and answers ceased to have meaning for me. What difference would it make to know why my mother had died? She would still be dead. What good did it do me to punish her killer? I would be dead too. Would any of this give meaning to my death or hers? There is always meaning in death, child. You will understand soon. Varane began a slow circuit of the room. He raised his hands, lifted his face, and, still walking, began to speak. Father of the sky and of the earth below you, master of all creation, hear your favored servants. We beg your guidance through the chaos of transition. He stopped in front of Rilad, whose face looked waxy in the gray light. I did not see the gesture that Varane made, but Rilad's sigil suddenly glowed white, like a tiny sun etched upon his forehead. He did not wince or show any sign of pain, though the light made him look paler still. Nodding to himself, Varane moved on around the room, now passing behind me. I turned my head to follow him. For some reason... It bothered me to have him out of sight. We beg your assistance in subduing your enemies. Behind me, Nahadoth 
had turned his face away from the rising dawn. The black aura around him had begun to wisp away, as it had on the night of Samina's torture. Varane touched Nahado's forehead. A sigil appeared out of nowhere, also white-hot, and Nahadoth hissed as if this caused him further pain. But the leaking of his aura stopped, and when he lifted his head, panting, the dawn's light no longer seemed to bother him. Varane moved on. We beg your blessing upon your newest chosen, he said, and touched Semina's forehead. She smiled as her sigil ignited, the white light illuminating her face in stark angles and eager, fierce planes. Varane came to stand before me then, with the plinth between us. As he passed behind it, my eyes were again drawn to the stone of earth. I had never dreamt it would look so singularly unimpressive. The lump shivered. For just an instant, a perfect, beautiful silver seed floated there before fading back into the dark lump. If Varane had been looking at me in that moment, all might have been lost. I understood what had happened and realized the danger, all in a single icy bolt of intuition, and it showed on my face. The stone was like Nahadoth, like all the gods bound here on earth. Its true form was hidden behind a mask. The mask made it seem ordinary, unimportant. But for those who looked upon it and expected more, especially those who knew its true nature, it would become more. It would change its shape to reflect all that they knew. I was condemned, and the stone was to be my executioner's blade. I should have seen it as a menacing, terrible thing. That I saw beauty and promise was a clear warning to any Aramary that I intended to do more than just die today. Fortunately, Varane was not looking at me. He had turned to face the eastern sky, as had everyone else in the room. I looked from face to face, seeing pride, anxiety, expectation, bitterness. The last was Nahadoth, who alone, besides me, did not look at the sky. His gaze found mine instead and held it. Perhaps that was why we alone were not affected as the sun crested the distant horizon, and power made the whole world shiver like a jolted mirror. From the instant the sun sinks out of mortal sight until the last light fades, that is twilight. From the instant the sun crests the horizon till it no longer touches earth, that is dawn. I looked around in surprise and caught my breath as before me the stone blossomed. That was the only word that could fit what I saw. The ugly lump shivered, then unfolded, layers peeling away to reveal light. But this was not the steady white light of Etempus, nor the wavering unlight of Nahadoth. This was the strange light I had seen in the Oubliette, gray and unpleasant, somehow leaching the color from everything nearby. There was no shape to the stone now, not even the silver apricot seed. It was a star, shining, but somehow strengthless. Yet I felt its true power radiating at me in waves that made my skin crawl and my stomach churn. I stepped back inadvertently, understanding now why Tavril had warned off the servants. There was nothing wholesome in this power. It was part of the goddess of life, but she was dead. The stone was just a grisly relic. 
Name your choice to lead our family, granddaughter, said Descartes. I turned away from the stone, though its radiance made that side of my face itch. My sight went blurry for a moment. I felt weak. The thing was killing me, and I hadn't even touched it. Rilad, I said. I choose Rilad. What? Samina's voice stunned and outraged. What did you say, you mongrel? Movement behind me. It was Varane. He had come around to my side of the plinth. I felt his hand on my back, supporting me when the stone's power made me sway, dizzy. I took it as comfort and made a greater effort to stand. As I did so, Varane shifted a bit and I caught a glimpse of Kouveret. Her expression was grim, resolute. I thought I understood why. The sun, as was its wont, was moving quickly. Already half of its bulk was above the horizon line. Soon it would no longer be dawn, but day. Descartes nodded, unruffled by Samina's sudden spluttering. Take the stone then, he commanded me. Make your choice real. My choice. I lifted a shaking hand to take the stone and wondered if death would hurt. My choice. Do it, whispered Rilad. He was leaning forward, his whole body taut. Do it. Do it. Do it. No! Samina again, a scream. I saw her lunge at me from the corner of my eye. I'm sorry. Varane whispered behind me, and suddenly everything stopped. I blinked, not sure what had happened. Something made me look down. There, poked through the bodice of my ugly dress was something new, the tip of a knife blade. It had emerged from my body on the right side of my sternum, just beside the swell of my breast. The cloth around it was changing, turning a strange wet black. Blood, I realized. The stone's light stole the color even from that. Lead weighed my arm. What had I been doing? I could not remember. I was very tired. I needed to lie down. So I did. And I died.